0: Remember how we used to listen to music? I had a friend as a kid who had the first Backstreet Boys CD. And I used to go to her house to listen to it pretty regularly because I didn't own it. And this is bad to say, but I didn't even really like her. I just went there so that I could listen to the CD. At some point in the years that followed, the dam broke. You remember when the dam broke? Suddenly, all the music we could have ever wanted was accessible, and we could download whole albums on Napster, or we could file share a lifetime of music with our friends. And we were hungry because it was all free. Fast forward to today, we have playlists we have music by subscription. It's an all-you-can-eat buffet that we essentially lease. And the only thing keeping it organized is the algorithm, which is its own sort of danger. You know, I listen to one thing on Spotify, the algorithm tells me to listen to more like it, and suddenly, am I becoming a version of myself that it's decided that I am? But I've recently come into a record collection. It's about a hundred soul, funk, pop, and jazz records from the 60s through the 80s that would have otherwise been thrown away. So I'm listening to these albums on vinyl, and then I'm searching them on Spotify to put them in a historical context, and then I'm digitally saving the songs and albums that I love. It's been a bizarre analog digital exercise, and it's made me think about how we take in culture and how much of it is our choice. This is FT Weekend, the podcast. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. This weekend on the show, we touch on three cultural habits and consider the forces that shape them, forces we don't always think about. The way we listen to music, the way we learn languages, and the way we read. First, as our listening habits changed, what happened to the industry behind it? Over the past 20 years, through this online music free-for-all, Artists have gone broke, and labels have folded. The industry even resorted to suing grandmothers whose grandkids were illegally downloading songs in their basements. The future of music was entirely unclear for years. Until it wasn't. This is the story of a turnaround, because the music industry has made it to the other side, and there's one label, and one man in particular, who's really come out on top.
1: You are... The head, Sir Lucian Grange, of all of the artists.
2: You are head of all of the writers. Here's my Martin Luther King. You are head of all the producers.
0: You just heard the one and only Lionel Richie at the Hollywood Walk of Fame ceremony for Sir Lucian Grange. He's the CEO of Universal Music.
1: The story of Lucian Grange and Universal Music and its comeback from the dire depths that the entire music industry reached about a decade ago is really a story of culture and power. We don't think of people in the content business, in the cultural business, having any power anymore. We assume that all power lies with these massive digital platforms. right? And that's me what's interesting about his story.
0: That's Andrew Edgecliffe Johnson, the FT's business editor. He's been covering these industries and Grange for decades at the Financial Times. Is it okay if I call you Edge? Is that of okay? course. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> we call him Edge. Universal Music is the world's largest and most powerful label, and it just became a publicly traded company. Edge and our U.S. media correspondent, Anna Nicolaou, recently profiled him for The Weekend magazine to coincide with their stock market debut. His success is a redemption story. But let's go back.
1: I think I first met him almost 15 years ago when I was in London, and he at the time was running all of Universal Music's international business. But he was a pretty well-known figure in the UK already. He'd been in the music business since he was a teenager. Lucian was on the fringes of the punk scene Mm. back in the day. But he'd got to know huge numbers of people in the music industry, going back to ABBA and Eurythmics. And while he was in London, had helped break artists like Amy Winehouse and Duffy.
0: By 2010, Grange had moved his way up to become Universal's CEO. And what piqued Edge's curiosity back then was that this was someone who'd been in the industry for 30 years, and he knew music. That was something no other executive had.
1: At the time, most of the other music companies were being run by people who'd run biscuit companies or who'd run you know, cleaning products companies and stuff. They're, you know, like any CEO, they hop around from company X to company Y. It doesn't mean very much. And it's quite fun to end up running a music company. But for the musicians, they have very, very little respect for the people who've come in from outside the music industry. Lucian Grange has good ears. He has a good hunch about what is going to make a hit. And so that gives him credibility with artists.
0: On any given week, often 9 out of the top 10 hits on the charts are by Universal artists. They've got Taylor Swift, Lady Gaga, Rihanna, Jay-Z, Mariah Carey, The Beatles, Justin Bieber, Elton John. Grange has also proved to be a shrewd businessman. When Spotify came along offering cents on the dollar every time someone streamed a song, most labels were wary, but Grange agreed to give it a try. This was a time when the big labels were huddled together for warmth. And he hammered out the terms that made this new model a multi-billion dollar growth engine for all of them. Basically, he helped establish the business model for the music industry we know today. Grange almost never does public interviews. If you Google him, you'll find a few clips of him on red carpets giving platitudes about music.
1: There are many thousands of individual records and individual tracks but it's the actual people who, who wrote those songs. You know, it's incredibly difficult to write a fabulous song.
0: But for this story, my colleague Anna Nicolaou got the rare chance to spend all day with him at his home in the Pacific Palisades, near Hollywood.
3: It's very where you would expect famous people to live. It's beautiful, and all the houses are like, there's all these like high hedges. and the, You know in those movies when you have to like talk to someone through some kind of, like, telecom thing. Yeah. And then the gate opens. It was literally like that. (laughs) And got there. It's this massive house. There's security guards everywhere. Because apparently he gets actually, like, death threats from, like, rap battles. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, And then there's, you know, like, staff sort of milling about. We were in the back of his house where he's essentially set up this work-from-home, like, it was amazing. It was just like outside on this like patio and there's this massive conference table in this like beautiful mansion. And it smelled like lemon trees.
0: Anna ended up spending seven hours at that table with Grange, watching him conduct his business. At one point, a young, very successful pop star named Abel Tesfaye stopped by to play him his new album. You may know him by his stage name, The Weeknd.
3: The weekend is like Probably top three most commercially successful artists right now. And he was clearly very much wanting Lucien's kind of respect and
0: approval. And what was happening when the music was playing? Like, what was Lucian doing? What were you doing? Oh, yeah. So this was the most uncomfortable thing for me. <laughs> I mean, it's like for you and I of like, we're just sitting at a table with
3: strangers reading out our articles, <laughs> yeah. and they have to pretend to like it. <laughs> right. No one's making eye contact, I feel like, which is weird. <laughs> like, the weekend's like looking down, and I'm trying, I'm like sort of like nodding my head. <laughs> and Lucien, but like, I mean, clearly, this is what he's been doing for decades. So for
0: him, this is completely normal.
3: He has like all these very specific things that he loves, and he's sort of like, Doing all the air drums and the... So he was like very effusive. Yeah, yeah, definitely. He was, you know, mouthing the lyrics and being like, brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my, my previous FT life was a lot of just like hanging around in the vicinity of pop stars. Mm-hmm. And for these, what I've observed with these people is they want to be respected, particularly in the kind of pop music sphere. No one wants to be viewed as this like vapid manufactured person, even if they might be. So, yeah, I think that's how he gets them to trust him is he talks about their art as if they're this creative force and he's just there to kind of help them through their creative journey.
0: In their piece, Edge and Anna call Grange the last mogul. And what's most interesting to me about their story is that the music industry has been able to hold on to its power in a big tech data first world with really old school methods, relationship building. Experience, knowing that intangible alchemy that has to come together to make a hit.
1: It's emerged as a growth industry again mm. because it finally redefined itself. It's not being about CDs, but about music and about particularly the relationship with the creators of that music. It's about the relationship between the executives like Lucian Grange and the artists like The Weekend, and this ultimately is their unique power in the relationship with these all powerful digital platforms you know apple amazon spotify google no matter how big they are do not have those personal relationships that ability to schmooze and to flatter mm-hmm. and to cajole and to direct the talent
0: Let's put Spotify aside for a minute and remember that record labels are now making deals with a lot of other companies, too. Social platforms, so you can play music behind TikTok videos and Instagram stories. And workout companies, so you can listen to Taylor Swift on your Peloton ride. Video game companies.
3: They've kind of created this new model where their music is intellectual property, and anyone who wants to have music involved in whatever they are selling now needs to come to these three companies Mm. and pay them. And so they're going into, like, every kind of industry imaginable. Spotify is the thing everyone thinks of. But what's sort of underpinning these massive valuations, at least right now, is this expectation that music is now this kind of, like, utility that people have to pay for.
0: Universal went public on September 21st with a valuation of $55 billion and its share price very quickly surged.
1: I think what's interesting about this IPO is that it comes after a period of surprising and sustained growth for the music industry. And so there is a real question now about whether this is the kind of crowning glory of the streaming moment and the, the moment which heralds a new growth phase for the music industry, or whether this is Universal Music calling the top of the market and cashing in.
0: The thing about this switch to streaming is that digital music will never clutter your home, unlike books, which, despite the rise of the Kindle, we seem to have a lot more trouble letting go of. So where's the balance between the joy of having books and the oppression of having too much stuff? I have found amongst us a fervent reader, a book lover, a book writer, who's been espousing the value of a purge.
2: I have a little test, actually. I sometimes say I have a book. If I found this in a charity shop for 10 pence, would I buy it?
0: (laughs) That's a really good idea. It's it's,
2: it's true. Think about how many books you've got where that isn't true. If you you (laughs) saw it in a charity shop for 10 pence, you wouldn't buy it. But because you've already got it, you don't want to give it up.
0: Julian Baggini is a well-known philosopher and speaker. He's written over 20 books about philosophy for general audiences, like How the World Thinks, A Global History of Philosophy. And he writes regularly for the FT.
2: It's a very strong psychological bias, is loss aversion, that when you have something, it always seems more valuable than if you didn't have it in the first place.
0: Julian recently wrote a piece about why we should all chop our book collections. I've put it in the show notes. The main question was, why is it so hard? You know, I, you said sometimes we keep books to signal to ourselves and others that we're smart and that it's an ego thing. Tell me about that.
2: Well... I mean it doesn't sound very charitable and and I wondered about (laughs) that. But it was interesting. I spoke to various people. People do know that they love having that collection on their shelves. It's it's affirming of something really important about their identity. And I think, you know, for people who do value learning and, and their intellect. Yeah, there's not much that you can sort of display which sort of shows that off. But your books, that's what signals it. And it's not just to other people. So it's not just about showing off. It's about reassuring yourself. And I think that in the long run, what it ends up doing is is it's it's self flattery So for Mm. instance, I mean, I really wish I could read more fiction. I used to read a lot of fiction and I just don't have the time to these days. I've got too much I have to read. And I've got novels. I had novels on my shelf the fact of the matter is I read them. Yes. Will I read them again? Probably not. So it's a kind of deceit to kind of parade this fiction as though I'm someone who is literary in that sense. The the truth is, I'm sadly not.
0: I feel like you're giving yourself a hard time. (laughs) I mean, I'm thinking about the books that I have. And and yes, I agree that it's an ego thing to a degree, right? Like, um, based on my tastes, you might understand something about About who I am, if you come to my house, I guess. But, but then it feels like there is something more. I mean, I have to believe that. Like, when I look at certain book spines, they make me happy. When I'm writing something, I often reopen an old book to get inspiration from the writing style of the author. I love to lend them. It feels like they hold more meaning than something like a blender or 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 a piece of of clothing. Like, and I don't really know. You know, like where where's the line? Is hoarding (laughs) books ever good?
2: Well, some things are very hard to pin down, and and what you said about just simply getting pleasure at looking at them. I mean, if you've got the space and you get pleasure from looking at them, I guess, you know, what's the harm in that? But I still suspect that for the vast majority of people, they could halve their book collection and still have all that pleasure. And that's actually what I found. When I got rid of a lot, we got rid of a lot, and what is left It actually brings more joy, as it were, because what happens is that when you keep too much, the the real gems, the things that you really love, You know, the things that spark joy, as Mary Kondo would say, get kind of lost, lost among all the things that are guiltily staring at you, that you feel you ought to have read or that you ought to keep or that you Mm -hmm. should have appreciated more. So when you're a bit more thorough about it, when you do look at your bookshelf, I think you get more pleasure. Yeah, yeah. One person put it in these terms: he just said that I've purged my books by a third, two or three times in my life and that what remains is gold.
0: I'm curious, what is your advice for people who want to downsize like you? What are the things that we should keep in mind?
2: I, I think this one should has to, has to fight uh, the temptation to believe that you're bound to regret it. So if you've got a book which you've got reason to believe is hard to get hold of <laughs> or is rare yeah. or something, then, then do keep it. But the worst case scenario, to be honest, in most cases is that you rebuy it for a few quid. And mm-hmm. if you don't rebuy it from that online behemoth Amazon, you're probably, in rebuying it, giving a bit of a support to an independent bookseller or something. So you're actually doing a bit of social good as well or That's giving true. a tiny reward. So, you know, it, it's, it's not a, a big harm. But also I think perhaps try and think about the negative side of keeping it because, I mean, do you find, do you find too many of those books are looking at you a bit, making you feel guilty?
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because, I mean, you know, yeah.
2: You can free yourself of that.
0: The books that make me feel the most guilty are the ones that I have but haven't read yet and keep thinking I'll get around to and probably won't.
2: <laughs> right.
0: Do you have a strategy yes. for those? Did you end up getting rid of a lot of those?
2: I think I'm just trying to be a bit more more honest about things. It is partly about recognising mortality, isn't it? <laughs> that there's only so <laughs> many years left, you know. I, I, I say to people, yeah, my two-read pile is longer than the rest of my life is. Your book is doing more good if it... Go somewhere where it's got a chance of being read, rather than it sits on your shelf waiting for the day, as I morbidly put it, when you know people move in and take everything away because (laughs) you're gone.
0: Um, Thank you so much for joining. This was a real pleasure. I'm going to give this a shot myself. Oh, good for
2: you. (laughs) Yeah, good for you. It's time. Don't blame me if you regret it, though, eh?
0: (laughs) I won't. I won't. I won't. And finally, from shedding books to picking up new languages.
4: Yeah, hello Isabel yeah, pour pour Financial Times of in London That's probably not that accurate but there we go That's Isabel
0: Beric. she's the FT's working careers editor. she's speaking Danish there, but she's not Danish. She's English and over lockdown she taught herself a whole new language.:
4: I was watching a lot of Danish television late at night. I loved the kind of word soup that came out of the actor's mouth.
0: A bit of context here. People often talk about Danish being a harsh, throaty, fiendishly difficult language. Just a sample. Trøve is the number 30. Pinsvignel means hedgehog. And ble is soft. Although that doesn't really sound soft at all. Isabel did have some connection to the language.
4: We used to go there on holiday when I was a child. We had friends there And I think latterly, I'd become quite enamoured of the Danish mindset. It
0: turns out she had quite a bit of natural ability. She was so good, she actually ended up on the Duolingo leaderboard as part of the top 2% of the Danish language learners on the app. Which makes me think, those must have been really good TV shows.
4: At the time, I was watching one called Ride Upon the Storm, which in Danish is called Heronsvee, about a family of priests in Copenhagen. Simultaneously, I was watching another one called Rita about a teacher.
0: So what brought Isabel to Duolingo were these dark Danish TV dramas. But what kept her there was actually how difficult the languages.
4: Danish is really hard. It's actually harder than the other Scandinavian languages. It's, it's not written at all as it's spoken. Uh, The pronunciation is infernal. And as I went on, I became more and more sort of attracted to trying to master this. Danish is a sufficiently small language on Duolingo that I could see every week who I was competing against. Because it's gamified, it becomes quite addictive. So I was spending probably an hour or an hour and a half a night on Duolingo.
0: That gamified, highly addictive quality of the app is what has made Duolingo a cultural phenomenon over the past 18 months. I find myself dipping in and out to brush up on my Greek, and it's so easy to get stuck in. But Isabel found that turning to this language in lockdown was becoming more than an addictive hobby.
4: I was someone who was quite scared by the pandemic. I didn't go out very much in the early months. And it was, an, it was a form of escape for me. Duolingo was what I would call in my day job as work and careers editor, a sort of liminal or boundaried activity. It's a, it it's took the place of my commute. So essentially it marked the barrier between my working day and my leisure time.
0: Isabel also liked how it felt learning Danish. It was a new experience to have to search for a word in your head instead of it just appearing there.
4: I found that feeling of vulnerability really interesting to explore because it's obviously not one I have in English. I, you know, I'm a native English speaker and English is how I make my living, essentially. I'm extremely fluent. I'm extremely verbal. And to be in a place where I can't find the words was really illuminating.
0: As she moved up the Duolingo Danish leaderboard, she started to build a new relationship with her
4: own language. You can almost reach back into the past, and it's wonderful. You can almost touch our common ancestors. There's lots of ways in which Danish sounds very much like English. So, you know, things like "come here" and gold is gild. A lot of the old words are very similar. My favourite, favourite Danish phrase is heisgett which is hello, darling, or hey, honey, but it's all, sket is is darling, it's also taxes, which I think comes from treasure. So sket is treasure, but it's also taxes, and it's also darling. That's the joy of languages, isn't it? The way that all of these things kind of interplay in a way they don't in English. There are different connections that you can see, and I love that. Because of travel restrictions, Isabel still
0: hasn't been able to test that word, sket,
4: in Denmark. But she's planning a trip. As soon as I can, I'm going to go to Copenhagen and, and surprise them with my menu ordering in Danish.
0: Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. We received a lot of great responses to our last episode. People loved traveling on the Orient Express, I don't blame you, so did I, and they felt very strongly about Janan Ganesh's opinion that we will quickly forget COVID, as we've forgotten World War II. Some vehemently agreed, some vehemently disagreed, and if that's not the role of a columnist, I really don't know what is. One listener wrote, "'I'm old enough to remember the 1950s and 60s. The war pervaded the lives of everyone I knew, my parents, my aunts and uncles, my teachers.' I can tell you many stories of how raw the recollections were and how quickly the afflicted could put themselves back in the midst of them. In contrast, everyone has been at the front for COVID, and the worst of it has been in our living room, on TV, every night. People young and old won't forget it for a long time to come. I always love hearing from you, so keep your responses coming. We're also still collecting your cultural recommendations. Duolingo is making Isabel happy. What's one thing you're reading, watching, eating, doing that's making you extremely happy right now that you think that everyone needs to know? It can be as mainstream as you like or as obscure or weird as you like. Just send it along to me and we may include you in a future episode. You can write to me by email at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod, Pod and I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Lila You can find all of that and links to everything we mentioned in the show notes. There's also a special discount there for an FT Weekend subscription and at ft.com slash weekend podcast. Lastly, please subscribe and share this with the people you know. Tell a few friends, put it in your Instagram story. If you like listening, that's really the best way you can support us. It really helps people find the show. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. George Drake Jr. is our senior producer. Lulu Smith and Josh Gabbert-Doyan are our assistant producers. And we had special help this week from Alice Fordham. Breen Turner is our sound engineer with original music by Metaphor Music. Cheryl Brumley and Manuela Saragosa are our executive producers. And we had editorial direction from Renee Kaplan. Let's meet here again next week.